Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the War Memorial Opera House and the San Francisco Ballet Meet the Artist program, which is produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm very happy to be here today and to have as my guest this year's visiting scholar, Dr. Stephanie Jordan, who's here from London to do a series of lectures on the relationship between music and dance. Please welcome her. My name is Cheryl Osola. I'm a writer for San Francisco Ballet and editor-in-chief of Dance Studio Life magazine. And for those of you who listen to these podcasts via our website, I'd like to welcome you also. If you're listening in, today is Sunday, April 6, 2014. Along with the podcasts, you'll find all kinds of interesting things at our website, sfballet.org. Uh, the company's blog is called Open Studio 455. You'll find videos there, casting information, and posts about what some of the company members are up to. And there's an adult education page as well where you can find out about upcoming events, uh, including the next two lectures by Dr. Jordan. I believe there may be a few seats left. Uh, one is this evening and one is tomorrow night on Mark Morris, and uh, Balanchine Stravinsky and Agon, respectively. So I'm gonna tell you just a little bit about Dr. Jordan, but her CV goes on for pages and pages and pages. So it's going to only be a little bit. She's a research professor in dance at the University of Roehampton in London, and she's considered the foremost thinker on the relationship of music and dance. She holds three degrees in music and has written four books, one of which, about Mark Morris, will be published in the fall. She has written many articles and essays about music and dance and has lectured on those topics at conferences worldwide. At New York City Ballet, she created a video, Music Dances, Balanchine Choreographs Stravinsky, a project commissioned by the George Balanchine Foundation. She, had, she made a second video, Ashton to Stravinsky, a study of four ballets in collaboration with the Royal Ballet. For her 2000 book, Moving Music, Dialogues with Music in 20th Century Ballet, Dr. Jordan received the 2001 special citation of the Dance Perspectives Foundation. In 2010, she received the Outstanding Scholarly Research in Dance Award from the US Congress on Research in Dance. She's received numerous grants, as well as a John M. Ward Fellowship in Dance and Music for the Theater at Harvard University. Her consulting projects include a BBC TV documentary on the Rite of Spring. For those of you who are just joining us, I'm in conversation with visiting scholar, Dr. Stephanie Jordan. So, Stephanie, you've trained in ballet, modern dance, and dance notation. You've performed and choreographed, and you're a musician as well as a researcher. Please talk to us a little bit just about your relationship with dance and music and how all of that led you to the kind of work you're doing now. Okay, well, like a lot of 
um, young girls, I had to do ballet classes and was in, in love with the idea of, of being a dancer. And then when I was about 12, I decided perhaps I didn't want to do any more classes and ballet examinations. And at the same time, I was learning to play the piano. Um, I was a cellist as well. And I thought perhaps what I'll do is, is become a musician instead. So I dropped dance completely. In the, the kind of years where you make sort of drastic decisions quite quickly without thinking about the consequences. Um, then when I was at my, doing my undergraduate degree, I thought for my final year dissertation, I really wanted to get back to dance. And it was on Stravinsky and Balanchine. I wrote my dissertation. Then I came here um, and read historical musicology at UCLA. Um, and with some difficulty found myself able to do some dance history courses and music and dance courses while I was there. And then I was lucky enough to have a year in New York where I just saw everything I possibly could. I loved Balanchine's work, loved the work of Merce Cunningham, just, just saw everything I could. It was a very exciting time. It was mid-late 70s, um, fantastic. A turning point in my life was coming to this country and seeing, as Merce Cunningham used to say, you know, do the impossible. So I, I just thought, you know, the horizon was limitless here. Then I went back to Britain um, and I had the luck of getting a job in an institution of higher education pretty quickly where I could be in a dance department. I wrote about new dance, contemporary dance in, in Britain, first of all. There was a need for somebody to do that, to follow up that tradition as opposed to the American tradition, which of course had been written about considerably and was very, very influential. And then gradually I thought I really do want to put my two backgrounds in music and dance together. And I discovered that, that I had this quite unusual in-depth education in both. Um, and that I was able to write about what I saw and what I heard in a way that was perhaps unusual. It's a choreomusicology, if you need to have a title for it. It, it sounds grand, but, but it, actually it's not a bad title for the kind of work that I'm doing, which is really watching and considering the two art forms together, um, interacting and having a conversation. There are quite a few people, it's a growing field now, quite a few other people working in that field, and it's great to have some colleagues, but that's how I got there. And uh, what kind of music? You took piano, is that right? Or yes, um, my main instrument was piano, um, and um, in a small way, while I was a student, I, I was performing, I played a Mozart piano concerto with the university orchestra at one point, um, and then gradually moved back to dance, did classes, loads of classes, ballet, um, and whenever the most Cunningham company and dancers came to London, which they did frequently, um, they, or they came over just to offer courses, I was there and I did two professional dance courses with Merce. And that was the kind of technique I started to teach at, actually in the studio as part of my job. So I was teaching practical work in dance um, and then gradually I stopped playing the piano, no more scales and arpeggios. Um, I was interested in music in a new way in terms of how it related to movement. And that musical background was wonderful for thinking about phrasing and dynamics and structure in dance because I don't think the dance world was really doing that kind of thinking about dance in that way. 
So as a research professor, how do you divide your time between, say, classroom work, projects, research, that sort of thing? Well, um, it's, I, I, I achieved that position after many years of teaching undergraduates and postgraduates, graduate students, as you call them. Um, and then gradually I became head of department, managerial roles, and then very quickly I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life being a manager. I'd like to get keep in dance, and I had opportunities to, to apply for grants which would cover my time to research and write. Um, and that's what I really like doing now, and, and this kind of work, which is talking to people beyond academia. I find that really important and inspiring, not to just talk to academics. Yeah. So, uh, given your background, I would imagine that the way you think about music and dance is far more sophisticated and complex than the way most of the rest of us do. Um, and you've, you've written extensively about how to understand this relationship. So I wondered, um, how are we, in general, misunderstanding it? And what can you offer us to help us learn how to interpret these two things in a better way? Um, I'm not sure people are misunderstanding it. I just feel that it's a process of continuing enrichment, that we can think in different ways about how music informs dance and dance informs music. Um, and sometimes if I become too analytical, I'm, I'm not seeing or hearing the obvious, so it works both ways. Um, but I do find sometimes that people feel dance must have a musical basis. You can't move without music. And Balanchine's often said, music is the floor upon which the dancers work. I must have music. And somehow dance therefore becomes sort of secondary. It's got to have this musical base. And musicians love to see music being visualized. I'm working on Mark Morris now, and, and they, they, they love to feel, they notice when the music goes up and the movement goes up and a rhythmic basis or a beat is clearly articulated. Um, and they quite frequently think that that's what it's all about. But I'd enc I encourage people now to think that music and dance can converse with each other that and they can operate together in many ways sometimes visualizing musical detail but on other occasions working against what you hear um, so there's a space between them um, rhythmically working between cue points in the music not hammering out the musical rhythms or the beat if there is one very clearly there in the music and of course, Merce Cunningham and John Cage have taught us a lot about how to approach and, and, and relate to uh, dance pieces where the music and, and the choreography are made completely independently. So there's kind of space for you to sometimes be hearing and not concentrating on seeing so much. And then you'll see something, um, and, and it's not underpinned by, by, by music. So you begin to see it with a different kind of clarity. All those possibilities are there. Or you might sometimes um, 
experience in the theatre a piece where there's a popular piece of music or a piece of music that has very strong connotations uh, and the dance may not be working with those connotations it could be working against them so the two are rubbing together in in a in a in a, in a sort of conflicting way which can set up new meanings there's all these possibilities to explore. So there's so many different ways in which music can be used by choreographers. Um, it's a limitless field. Well, one of the things you talked about in your lecture last night was um, how you know the relationship between music and dance can be, as you just mentioned, uh, characterized in very different ways. Um, it can be a kind of a fusion, and you use the term artistic um, uh, synesthesia, which I think is a really interesting idea. And then there's more the idea of counterpoint, where the, where the, the two are functioning more independently. So acknowledging that that's the case, I still wonder if you could point your finger to, to a dance work that you think is perfectly matched to the music you couldn't have thought of a better way to do it? Well, I think there's, there's one in the repertoire right now, which I'll be talking about on Monday, which is Agon. Um, one of the few actual collaborations from scratch between Balanchine and Stravinsky. Um, and I say that because you have fascinating mixtures of approach. Sometimes you see this Little, little moment visualized on stage for you um, because of a very close point of contact. They tend to be moments which stick out and become very important because these, these moments of visualization are re really stand very clearly in your memory as like signposts as you find your way through a piece like Agon. But then there are other moments where you feel uh, like the music might be in three and the and the, and, and the dances in fives away from that, for instance, um, crossing until they gradually come into unison in terms of meter or meter or metrical organization. It's a lot of different things. Um, Agon to with the musical score, which they started working on in 1954, and the premiere was in 1957, um, is, is quite motoric in many ways. A very clear sense of beat is felt in all, most of the movements. But then you get to the wonderful pas de deux when the sense of uh, rhythmic continuity gives up for a while and, and the music is full of breath and stretch. Wonderful contrast with everything that goes around it. And then finally, um, we find uh, Balanchine and Stravinsky coming back to the beginning again, a dance for four men. This is how it starts, this is how it finishes, and that motor is back. So variety there in approach to music and style of music. It's a, it's a wonderful piece, incredibly economical. It seems to be over in a flash, but so much has passed, extremely dense and intense. If you're just coming in, I'm chatting with our visiting scholar, Dr. Stephanie Jordan. So, um, you know, three of the choreographers who are on our current and upcoming programs, George Balanchine, Alexei Rutmansky, Mark Morris, um, are each widely identified as being quote unquote musical choreographers. And that can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, so just 
and I and I know you're less familiar with Alexei's work. You you you've not had much opportunity to see it, opportunity to see it in, in England. Um, but just thinking in terms of Shostakovich trilogy, which you've seen uh, twice yesterday, and Balanchine's Agon and Morris's Maelstrom, what can you point to in those works that would sort of identify how these choreographers are musical? Musicality is many different things, but I think if there's one one point that comes out, the choreographers I find musically interesting, in, and I would say in different ways. Musicality is many different things, many possibilities for approach to music. I would say that it, the choreographer help makes me listen more acutely to the music. Not necessarily listen in the same way as if I was hearing the music in a concert, because the dance is going to structure my experience of what I hear in new ways, bringing out certain moments, maybe erasing from my awareness other moments that could be important in a concert performance. It's like you put another layer on top and the two together create a new structure. Some choreographers do that for me, others do very little, so I don't find myself hearing anything or very little, put it that way. Uh, those three choreographers do release a new experience of the music for me. They draw attention to the music. So I'm hearing in a very interesting way as well as seeing what they do. Um, but they are musical in different ways. Um, I'm not prepared to make too many pronouncements on Rapmansky. I don't know his work well enough at the moment, but I do see that he picks up a Balanchine's approach in some ways, like the mixture of visualization and rhythmic counterpoint I see there um, in his work. And Mark Morris, something that I, a person I'll be talking about tonight, I find that he is exceptional amongst choreographers that I know at the moment in actually experimenting, going out of his way to constantly change his approach to music, to upset what he's done before. So there are dances that, where he decided, I will not use the score here. I want to actually work without seeing the page. And the way he deals with the music is quite different as a result of that. Others, most of his dances, he's got a score in his hand when he choreographs all the time, and, and, and it's very, very clear that he's using musical, the detail of musical structure much, much more. Yeah, Balanchine Morris and I believe Ratmansky all do work with scores typically. They all had musical training. You mentioned last night that Sir Frederick Ashton did not use a score. Um, and so what are the advantages and disadvantages to a choreographer um, in working from a score versus learning the music solely by hearing it? Um, I probably wouldn't talk about advantages and disadvantages. I would say that they probably hear in a different way. I feel it's fascinating. I feel quite strongly that Balanchine saw bar lines on the page, and he could, and so did Nijinska, choreographing 
Stravinsky's Les Noces in 1923, it's fascinating to see that using the score that way and seeing it as well as hearing it, they could actually use the structure of the written score when the, the music doesn't actually sound like the written score as it suggests. In other words, if I saw, a very simple example, if I saw that the score was written in 3-4 and, and the music itself was not falling neatly between those bar lines, what you hear, Balanchine and Nijinska would use the bar line structure sometimes, which would guarantee that there would be a kind of counterpoint with what you actually heard. That's, I hope that that's, that that's clear, but I found that fascinating. That, that that would actually drive them to follow the look of the score rather than what is heard uh, and guarantee a sort of disjunction as a result of that. Ashton um, follows melody line more than metrical structure, which means that he has a, a very different approach to music um, from, from Balanchine and I think from Ratmansky in that respect. I think it was a very interesting choice. Maybe it was a, a touch of laziness that he didn't want to be to 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 go down that route of being trained in music theory and 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 and, and looking in that way. But it worked very well for him because he has a kind of freedom from from bar lines, which is which is very interesting and. Wonder, wonderful, wonderful things uh, about his musicality. He will free himself from the immediate um, speed of the music sometimes and work against it by a touch of impatience, like allegro work, not prompted by the music, which may remain slow, which creates an incredible impression of em em emotional disturbance sometimes. Um, what can I say is when I wrote Moving Music, which covers Balanchine, Ashton, and Anthony Tudor, another wonderful um, choreographer, I fell in love with the next one. I fin finished with Balanchine, well, temporarily. I can never say I finished with Balanchine. And I went on to Ashton, and I thought, oh, this is the most wonderful musicality that I've ever come across. And then Anthony Tudor delighted me again uh, when I got to him. So it was this difference in musicality that really excited me. Well, we've, we've been talking exclusively about choreographers. Um, what about dancers? In our country, you know, musical training while you're training as a dancer is not a given. And, um, you know, what, what are the dancers who don't train in music losing, if anything? And is it possible to gain that back later if they study music in their teens or as adults? Um, I'm not an expert on, on dancer training in terms of music, but I, I, I do feel that uh, it would be wonderful for dancers to be trained through their technique classes, which they all do, to be listening more as well as as working on getting the leg high and doing the turns and finishing it neatly and that kind of thing. It's a, a sort of expressive teaching that could bring in your ear as well as your eye in the day-to-day -day work that a dancer does. 
so that they're alert to hearing. And maybe the, the dance technique class or some kind of workshop situation would be useful whereby different relationships with the music could be introduced to dancers. So they work with its rhythms, maybe against its rhythms. I mean, three against four is, is a fairly abstract, uh, you know, plain sort of concept. But the idea that um, between bar one and eight, you could have some freedom to do the first section of a phrase faster and then slow down to catch up with the end of the musical phrase, it would be, it would be most interesting to see whether that kind of approach could be introduced into dance or education. I'd like to see that. Uh, I'm going to open this up to questions from you. And uh, we do have limited time, so one question per person. And please keep them brief. That hand went up. The choreographer Alonzo King has said that dancers are musicians, so he's asking uh, Dr. Jordan to comment on that. Um, they, they certain, I don't know whether they are interpreting the music. They are responding to it and can choose to move with it and against it in different ways. Um, to some extent, choreographers also could be said to be musicians, but not, in, not that they are actually playing the music, but then they're adding another layer. Dancers and choreographers are adding another layer to the musical experience. Um, their phrasing and some of the ideas upon which dance is based, like a, the dynamic of a dance phrase, uh, these are ideas, concepts that are right the common across the two art forms, music and dance. But I, I'm not sure that aesthetically, philosophically, I could say that dancers aren't musicians. They're working with and conversing with and interacting with what they hear. And Suzanne Fowler is an incredible example um, of somebody interacting within a single performance. She talked to me, and she's, she's put this in writing, I believe, about every single performance being different, and sometimes, quite frequently, she would be listening to a different texture or a different part of the orchestra, responding to the brass at one performance, thinking about what the flute is doing at another, and dancing off that, if you like. There's a very, very close relationship, therefore, between what she's doing and what she hears. I mean, if you want to call that being a musician, that's just fine. Uh, How is Mark Morris's yes. work received in London? Sorry <laughs> about that. I think the UK is his second home outside the US, which, which is interesting to me. Um, for a while, he came to the UK far more than anywhere else, and he's a, he's a regular visitor. Last time he came, he had fantastic reviews, wonderful reception, um, and I gather he quite likes being there too. Um, but perhaps the interesting thing question two is uh, why he is so liked in the UK, but maybe, and I don't know whether this will change, he's not so popular or 
not such a regular visitor to other countries within Europe. He is going to Dresden very soon, however, in Germany, and he's, for the second year running, he's going to be in Madrid. I wonder whether um, there is something about the dance music tradition within the UK. Um, I think that we have a very strong dance music tradition through Ashton's work, for instance, and the work of our contemporary choreographer, Richard Alston, I would also cite. There is a, an understanding that you can dance about music, um, that it doesn't have to be tanseata or physical theater. Um, and I wonder whether there is a link there between his popularity Aside from academia, do you have any interest in choreography? Being a choreographer? Um, well, I had... I left my brief choreographic career behind in the 1980s. Um, I was performing at that point and made a couple of um, pieces, but I didn't find that a very fulfilling job. I think I was a bad choreographer um, <laughs> and that I had... I would be more successful doing other things, put it that way. But it was an interesting experience. No doubt about that. What are the essentials of the Rite of Spring? What should they be watching for, listening for? Well, I haven't seen this one yet. I'm seeing it for the first time this afternoon. <laughs> but you may like to look at my database called Stravinsky, the Global Dancer, which will prove that there are at least, well, well over 200 versions of the Rite of Spring, many of which I've seen. And the choreography will be different, undoubtedly, um, in, this, in this version. Well. Where do I start? Um, those of you who know the music as a concert piece, be ready to have your listening challenged by seeing a new choreography, which will make you hear different things in the score. Um, every single Rite of Spring t deals with the score and the textures in the score in a different way. And there are many different versions of the story as well. And one interesting thing will be to see whether the prologue of the score, which was never intended to be danced originally. There are two parts to the Rite of Spring, and there's a, um, a prologue section to each part, never intended to be danced. But now, most choreographers do choreograph those prologues. Will it be there or will it be not? Will it be the opportunity for a scene change or an overture, or will it not be? There's things like that. There are a lot of ostinatos in the music, and by that I mean repeating motives, which will which will go on time and time again, and maybe textures over that, those repeating motifs. A multi-textured, multi-layered musical experience. Will the choreography use those layers? Will it respond to the detail of musical rhythm? Uh, the reconstruction 
of the Nijinsky by Millicent Hodson, for instance, the Augurs of Spring, you know, da 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 yamba da da with the irregular rhythm accents over the da 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 da. She follows every da 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 down because she believes that that's what was done originally. And there's evidence that it was influenced by Jack Dalcroze's Eurythmic System, so she should do that. Pina Bausch won't be showing you all those da da da. She'll be going ya da 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 da. Da, da, in her dance, so her, her, her movements are twice as long, if you like. So, heavens, that's just the beginning of the answer to your question. That's all I can do so far. <laughs> we are out of time. Uh, I would like to thank you so much for being here. Stephanie Jordan, thank you all, and enjoy the show. Thank you.